0: This is a re-preaching from the sermon that was delivered on Sunday, February 7th at First United Methodist Church. The scripture that we're reading today comes from the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. But you, dear friends, remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the end times scoffers will come, living according to their own ungodly desires, These people create divisions. Since they don't have the Spirit, they are worldly. But you, dear friends, build each other up on the foundation of your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep each other in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will give you eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save some by snatching them from the fire. Fearing God, have mercy on some, hating even the clothing contaminated by their sinful urges to the one who is able to protect you from falling, and to present you blameless and rejoicing before his glorious presence, to the one only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, belong glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. It's so good to be with you all today as we're continuing our sermon series in looking at some of the shortest books of the Bible. Today, as I've mentioned, we're looking at the book of Jude. Jude's an extremely short book of the Bible that consists of one chapter that is made up of 25 verses. Aside from being an extremely short read, Jude is one of the few books or letters in the New Testament that does not give us a specific audience or a specific community or church that the letter is written to. For example, if you'll think with me of other letters in the New Testament, we know that Paul's letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy were written to a man named Timothy who traveled with Paul. We know this first because Paul says he wrote the letter, but then also that he says he is writing his dear friend Timothy and he names him in the letter. He names his family members, his mother, and everything else. And so we know who that letter is written to. We know who wrote it. And so the letter is named according to the recipient. We know that Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is called Ephesians. And so we know that Paul was writing to a church in Ephesus, just like Corinth and and the other letters that he wrote, and he aimed it and targeted it at a group and a Christian community for their specific instances that were occurring. Since we know who the letters were written to, that's how we refer to the letters. So it's Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus or the book of Ephesians. And so here this, here's the thing where Jude's a little different. Is we don't know to whom Jude is written. We don't know where Jude is written. The letter just refers by the author's first name, who was a man named Jude. First, v- verse one begins this letter by saying this, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So that's it. Jude doesn't tell us who he's writing to. Jude just says, That it is Jude who's writing the letter, who's a slave of Jesus Christ, and then he gives us the designation that he is the brother of James. See, in verse 1, we learn two things. First, that the author of this letter is a man named Jude. Of course, you're saying, well, yeah, he says it. But there are uh, four Judes that we can read about in the New Testament. And before I go into those four, Jude is a common name. And there are other um, ways that this name is spelled, depending on whether you're Greek or Hebrew in background and, and what you refer to this name as. And so whenever you read in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and it says someone named Jude or Judas or Judah, those are all the different spellings of basically the same name. And so there are four times or four Judes or Judases that we read about in the Gospels or the New Testament. The first is a man named Judas the Galilean who was a revolutionary who led a revolt against Rome. This was an armed insurrection and he was put to death. There's Judas who is also known as the son of James who was one of the 12 disciples. You all know this Judas. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. There's another Judas who also had a name called Barsabbas. He was an early Christian prophet that we read about in the New Testament. And finally, there is today's Jude, who is Judas or Jude, who is known and writes of himself as the brother of James, who is also the brother of Jesus. So this is the Jude or Judas that we're looking at. One who refers to himself as the brother of the leader of the Christian church who is based in Jerusalem. We know from reading the book of Acts that James became a leader of the church and James resided in Jerusalem and James with Peter were the two leaders that that directed the doctrine and the direction that the church was going to go and how they conveyed and passed on the message of Jesus Christ. We know that James is the one that Paul journeyed to visit with in the book of Acts when there was the Jerusalem council, when Paul came back, to define and to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ was not just for the people of Jewish faith, but that the church of Jesus Christ was also for those who were Gentile. And so it's this James that Jude is referencing when he says, the brother of James. Now it's interesting if you look at this, because Jude does not claim that he is a sibling of Jesus Christ. Instead, he just points that his brother is James, a leader in the church, of course, someone that everyone who was in the Christian faith would have known. But Jude doesn't lift up that he was a brother of Jesus. Now, see, I think there's a reason for that because when it came to following Jesus, Jude didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. He didn't believe. And so if you go and read in John chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Jesus' brothers said to him, to Jesus, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see the amazing works that you do. Those who want to be known publicly don't do things secretly. Since you can do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers said this because even they didn't believe in him. So you get this? So instead of following his Jesus, his brothers suggested that he go somewhere else to do the, his ministry. So basically they're saying, you may be doing what you're doing, but we don't really believe in it. We don't really believe that what you're doing is, is truly of God. And so instead of doing it here to where we have to face questions and, and have people look at us and wonder if, if we're along that line, same line of, of thought or of approach that you're doing, well, why don't you just go somewhere else? Because I'm sure there's other people that need to see what you're doing there. They just didn't want Jesus in their backyard, did they? And see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we learn another thing about how Jude and the brothers of Jesus did not initially follow Jesus. In Acts, it says, when they, the disciples, entered the city, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, Alphaeus' son, Simon the zealot, and Judas, James' son in law, were all united in their devotion to prayer, along with some women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So Jude would be included in the in his brothers who became followers of Jesus that we read about in the book of Acts, chapter 1. This is Jesus' brothers. Jesus had four brothers that that, uh, tradition believes or people believe. And they were James, and there was a brother named Joseph, and then there was Jude or Judas, and then there was a brother named Simon. And so none of these men were followers of Jesus during his life. But they all came to believe once they saw, once they witnessed, once they experienced the resurrection. And see, Paul writes about how they became believers and how they became missionaries in the early church, carrying the message of Jesus Christ out in the world. This is the other three brothers, not James, but in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, when Paul's writing about the the things that that he is to receive or, or how he is to live as a missionary, he says, don't we, so I, have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to travel with a wife who believes like the rest of the apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? So basically what Paul is saying, and, and without getting to, to his reasoning for why he's writing what he's writing, but what he is showing us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, is Paul is showing us that the brothers of Jesus, when they became followers of Jesus, became missionaries in the church. They traveled with their wives and they went about and they spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who would listen and to receive it. And so Paul shows us, Paul gives us evidence that Jude became a follower of Jesus and that Jude would have been a missionary and that Jude possibly, like we've read of in all these other letters in the New Testament, that that he has seen or he is experiencing things that he recognizes that he needs to correct in the church. And so he writes this letter. And so like we've seen in, in many of the other letters in this sermon series... One of the common struggles in the earliest Christian churches was the influence of false teachers who integrated themselves in the community and then after they were integrated in the community, they began to teach a message that was contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now see, here's where I think Jude gets a little bit interesting because Jude doesn't designate or specify the specific type of false teaching that was being taught in the church. Now Jude says that the false teachings cause, um, uh, will cause evidence of their false teaching, that it will become apparent to others that divisions will come and, and they will scorn the faith of others and they will mock the Christian faith for silly rules or that they determine to be outdated and they will choose to fulfill their own desires while making you know, the, their desires part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ while pushing out these other things. So basically what Jude is saying is we have to be on guard against that against people who scoff what it means to keep uh, the traditional Christian faith, what it means to, to follow the Apostles' Creed, what it means to live according to the grace and love that God has given us. So we have to be uh, aware of those people who, who cause divisions, who scorn the faith of others, and who mock the faith saying that it's outdated or, or it past and needs to be left behind that we need to be on guard for those who make their own desires the center of what it means to be a follower of God and of Jesus Christ, not so their hearts are changed, but so that they bend and change the faith and what we believe in order to accommodate them. See, what Jude is saying is that when false teachers choose to fulfill their own desires and scorn the faith that's passed on by the apostles, he says, you don't have God's spirit then. They don't have God's spirit even when they claim to do so. And so what he's saying is that instead of living in the spirit, when we live that way, there's a risk and we are only living at the human level alone. And so when he's looking at these false teachers, he's saying these are people that don't seek God's guidance. They don't invite the Holy Spirit to be a presence in their lives. They do not seek the change that comes in our lives, that comes only from God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But see, here's where I think Jude's unique. Because what Jude could have done is spent a lot of time in his letter going further against those false teachers in the church. He could have spent all sorts of time chronicling the different ways that, that they were leading people astray or the different messages or, or things in their own lives that they were incorporating into the Christian faith so that they would no longer be convicted by committing sin but instead would be able to, to do whatever they wanted to do. But see, Jude takes a more positive approach. And so instead of false, f- uh, focusing on the false teachers... What he does is he chooses instead to encourage and to direct those in the church of the ways that they can live without falling prey to the false messages that are clearly in their midst. And so instead of focusing on the things that are wrong, Jude focuses on the ways that Christians can live without falling prey or falling to the false message. And so basically what he's saying to them and to us is focus on those things that ensure that you are right in the eyes of God. Focus on those things that you can do in your life, that help you to grow closer to God, that help you to receive the transformation that comes through Jesus Christ. Focus on those things and build yourself up. He writes, to build yourself up in your most holy faith, Pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to show you the mercy which leads to the life of the age to come. See, Jude doesn't say, here's four things that you can do to defend yourselves against the false teachers. He doesn't say, here are some of the things that you can do to to notice or to see what they're saying, whether it's right or true. Instead, he takes a positive approach by inviting those that are listening, by inviting those of us who read these words to receive them and to look inward on ourselves and to say, how can I strengthen myself? How can I change my life so that when I encounter false teachings that are tempting, I can resist them and live in an even greater way in response to the grace that God has given me. And so in this verse, he gives us four different things that we can do, that we can uh, focus on to stay on target when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. He says, build yourself up in faith. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. And wait for the ultimate mercy of Jesus' return. So when Jude says, build yourself in faith, what he's saying is that we essentially need to engage in the work of faith so that our result, as he writes, will be mercy, peace, and love. This faith that he writes about means that, that we have both the knowledge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but that we also have the same commitment to Jesus that we need to have to be a follower of him. And so what we're doing is we're making him the foundation on which we build our lives. A foundation that we read about is firm and strong and it's lasting and it allows us to stand tall. Jesus in his parable where he talked about the builder who built his house on on different types of foundations and how, you know, the, the weaker foundations, when the winds blew and the waters came, the house flew over. Jude's essentially taking a teaching like that of Jesus's, isn't he? And he's saying that your foundation has to be strong and true. Your foundation to build yourself up in faith has to be God. Your foundation, your very life needs to be centered on the stable thing of God and his love so that when other teachings come around you, when the other teachings are, are in front of you, you will know what they are and you will choose to resist them. And you will choose to follow God. The second thing he says is we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to confess to you all that I think all of us know what to pray. But I think there's an uncertainty that comes with praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think that this uncertainty is a negative thing. This isn't a negative uncertainty, but it's a positive one. But if you really think about praying in the spirit, and if you are totally committed to God and totally seeking Jesus and his transformation in your life, when you pray and you seek God's spirit, here's where it's intimidating. His friends, we're opening our lives to that which can be beyond whatever we can imagine, or it goes even beyond our control. See, when you pray in the Spirit, you're opening yourself to God's work, to God's possibility, to God's imagination. You're opening yourself to God doing far more than we ourselves can ever do on our own, even if that's something that we feel we need to do. When God is part of it, it is greater, it is better, and it is good. In, in the spirit, I think it's like one of those experiments that many of us have seen. If you haven't, look it up online. They're pretty fun. But, you know, you get the two-liter bottle of Diet Coke and you get a pack of Mentos mints. And you know how it is. When you drop the Mentos into the bottle, you need to run really fast because the chemical reaction occurs. And, and the Diet Coke essentially erupts out of the bottle, shooting upward. And it's a huge mess, but it's amazing to see. But see, here's where I think praying in the Spirit is like that, because you know how it is. If you do that with the Diet Coke and the Mentos, there is no way you're getting the Diet Coke back in the bottle, is there? Because once it erupts, it's impossible to get it back in the container. It's everywhere. But see, that's praying in God's Spirit. As we try to live our lives and contain the faith like that bottle. And when we invite God's spirit in prayer to be a part of who we are and a part of what we're doing, there's the possibility that a reaction that can occur that, that's far beyond our control. That's like praying in the spirit. That's asking and inviting God to work in our lives in ways that have never happened before. When we pray, there's a risk, but it's a good one. That God will work in ways that we cannot imagine. Because when we pray in the Spirit, we place ourselves under His guidance and in the dominion of God in ways like no other. And then Jude says, keep yourself in God's love. See, that's keeping yourself in the presence of God. That's keeping yourself in a place to where you know where God is in your life and you know where you are in relation to him. Jesus in the gospel spends all of this time comparing himself numerous times to being a shepherd and comparing those of us who follow him to sheep. You know, when he talks about how a good shepherd doesn't allow his sheep to wander away, meaning that he's going to seek us out to nourish us and protect us. But here's where I think being in God's love comes into this. Is that being in God's love means that we have to focus on the ways in our lives where we can learn and trust from God, choosing not to stray. See, there's a great promise in Jesus saying he's a shepherd and Jesus saying that he's going to hunt us down and find us and bring us back. There's a great promise in, in receiving the forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus Christ and, and knowing that when we stray and when we return, God will welcome us back with open arms. But staying in love with God means keeping ourselves in the place where we're in the presence of God, we're in the presence of Jesus, and we aren't intentionally choosing and finding ways that we stray. We're not choosing or deciding the areas and the places in which we're going to fall back or take the different path or overlook when we know that God is before us and in our midst. See, if we want to stay in love with God and close to God, then we have to make sure that we're in his presence. The last thing that Jude lists for followers of Christ to do As he says, wait for the ultimate mercy of Jesus's return. We know in the early church, when they looked and anticipated and and thought that Jesus's return was coming, they thought that that it was going to happen in their lifetime. And so when they're talking about Jesus returning, they're talking about it like, you know, it's going to happen next year. And we know that that obviously that's not the case because it's been 2,000 years and we're still anticipating his return. We're still doing the work to prepare for his return. We're still looking ahead. But see that promise of Christ's return is a promise that's just as real today as it was yesterday. Because God has promised that when Jesus returns, Jesus will be revealed. And that all of us have that is something that we can look forward to. Even as we look around us, even as we think of the condition of this world, of different wings of the church, of other things that happen that do not build us up. Jude tells us to pray for the mercy of God that will bring us healing, wholeness, and renewal that comes only to us from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. See, Jude wants us to find these things so that we can stay focused on Him, so that we can stay in His presence, and so that when we are encountered or put in positions where these other teachings, these, these false teachings, these things that lead us astray or before us, we can turn and stay on the path that God leads us on in the path that Jesus guides us upon. We just have to build ourselves in faith, pray in the Spirit, keep ourselves in God's love, and then not get discouraged as we wait for the ultimate mercy of Jesus' return. Jude ends his letter by saying this great benediction where he says to the one who is able to protect you from falling and to present you blameless and rejoicing before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, belonging glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen.